Hello and welcome to another episode of the Buy Your Side podcast, the property podcast to help you make smarter property buying decisions. My name is Michelle May and I am the principal of Michelle May Buyers Agents here in Sydney. Now, I always talk about getting your contract reviewed, uh, no matter how many selling agents tell you, oh, they're all the same, don't worry about it, you know, we'll do the right thing by you. Now, that's all great, but do you actually know that there's quite a few tricky clauses in a contract that you may have never heard of? This is why today I am very honored to have Jared Zach, who is the principal of Dotted and Crossit Conveyancing and Solicitors with me today, who is going to talk us through three or four of the most tricky clauses in a contract and things that you really should be aware about and also discuss with your solicitor or conveyancer. Hey, Jared, how are you? Good. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm very excited to have you here because even though obviously I get a lot of contracts into me, even to me, they look very, very similar every single time. So it's great that um, you are willing to talk our listeners through some clauses that you really should be uh, paying attention to. Just why don't you hit me with the first one? Yeah, but before I do that, just a comment on your intro. It was absolutely spot on, but it is actually something relatively unique to New South Wales. I think, you know, if a sales agent in Queensland told you that all contracts are the same and don't worry and just sign, (laughs) it it wouldn't be the most untrue thing an agent's ever said because they're pretty Mm. standardized up there in Queensland. In fact, they're actually drafted by Queensland agents. In New South Wales, it's completely different. And and I don't even know what what the reason is. It might be sort of cultural. Someone once told me that Sydney or New South Wales is the second most litigious state in the world. Yes, Um, I've heard this as well. And and that will make sense. These contracts that they're... A lot of the time that they're, they're not pleasant. Um, there's a lot of little nasty clauses in there. They're not uniform. There is an element of the contract that's uniform. That's these sort of watermarked pages which are produced by the Law Society. But then you have at the back of those five to ten pages usually of so-called special conditions. Yeah. And that's where the vendor solicitor says, forget your printed conditions produced by the Law Society. We want to make it more in favour of the vendor. Yeah, And there's probably about three or four clauses which come up time and time again, and it might be useful for your listeners to have a bit of an understanding of those. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank, thanks for that clarification. I wasn't actually aware of that. But obviously, in Australia, every state has different rules around um, what can happen in real estate. But uh, so here in New South Wales, you've got the standard contract, you've got the special conditions. So which one is the first one you think we should be paying attention to? I, I wouldn't worry so much about the, the printed conditions. Uh, don't mm-hmm. try and read them. Um, no, I, <laughs> I can't remember the last time I read them. They're, they're, they're generally, Maybe you have trouble sleeping, you know, just yeah. put, put yourself to bed. <laughs> they're generally pretty fa- fairly sort of um, fairly drafted because they're produced by the Law Society. What, what you really, if, if you want to read something in your own time, check out the special conditions because that's where the nasties yeah. are. I'd look out for things, and we can talk about each of these. I'd look out for things like release of deposit clauses. I would look out for land tax adjustments. Mm-hmm. I'd look out for late fees. And I'd probably as a fourth thing as well, I'd have a bit of an understanding of, um, you know, if you are able to, to put down a, a lesser deposit, which we encourage mm-hmm. all our buyers to try and negotiate, how you'd actually do that and what that looks like and what that means if you actually default. Yeah, okay. So first of all, release of deposit. Let's break it down. What does it actually mean? And what does it mean for the buyer in particular, of course? Yeah, okay. So the normal transaction runs like this. You have an exchange or signing date. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's where you sign the contract and you put down a deposit. 
usually a 10% deposit, sometimes a 5% deposit. You then have a normally 42-day settlement period with which both parties race off to their bank and arrange all the various things that need to happen before settlement so that the mm-hmm. buyer's arranging finance, the vendor's arranging for his mortgage to be discharged. And there's a whole mm-hmm. lot of searches that, that, that conveyances are doing. Now, at the end of that 42-day period, usually, could be could be longer, could be shorter, we then settle and you pay the remainder, you know, the, the remaining 90%, plus your stamp duty and your settle. Now, the whole idea of a release of deposit is, is we go back to the point that you exchange contracts mm-hmm. and the vendor says, I want to get early access to that deposit, even though we're not going to settle for another 42 days, I want to get early access to that 10%, 5%, which would otherwise be in the real estate agent's trust account, and I want to go and spend that on another property. Mm-hmm. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, it may have to do with Sydney house prices or New South Wales house prices. They're so high and there's so much equity tied up these days in houses in, in your house. They mm. just may not have the money lying around to go and buy another property because don't forget, they've got to give you vacant possession in 42 yes. days' time. So you can kind of see where they're coming from, but it, it does impose a risk because that money is no longer sitting safely in the Ray White or the McGrath or the Bell Property Trust account. It's yep. now gone out into the ether and anything can happen. And in fact, in some cases, some things have happened to my clients. Yes. Because am I wrong in my understanding? And I've mentioned this before in other episodes that if, if it isn't specifically specified that the release of deposit is to be used for the purchase of a property, that vendor may well go out on, on an expensive, all-paid, all-inclusive uh, holiday in Bali uh, or buy a, a boat or, you know, some Tiffany jewellery for their wife. <laughs> and That's correct, right? They can literally spend it on anything. Yeah, absolutely. There's mm-hmm. two types of releases, release of deposit. Mm-hmm. There's one mm-hmm. that's bad and there's one that's really bad. And the one that you just described is the really bad one. So that's an absolute, absolute Right. Bad. So make sure, does it does it come with a small asterisk? This one is bad and this one's really no, bad. You've got to get your solicitor to, to review that. It's really important because that one you described, it's just a no. Where I've seen those clauses, um, Michelle, haven't, haven't actually been to go on a holiday. It's actually been to pay down debts like Amex bills and credit card bills. Ouch. Um, and that... That that sort of to me that indicates some kind of financial distress. Yeah, and that that is the real risk in release of deposits. Mm. So the real risk is actually not that they're going to go spend it on a trip in Bali. It's actually not that they're going to go to the the casino and spend it. It doesn't matter. You still mm. pay the deposit. Yeah, and so long as you settle in forty two days time, it doesn't matter. But that but that's the big proviso. So long as you settle now now why wouldn't you settle? If we come to 42-day time and Mm. the vendor can't settle, how could that possibly have happened? The main way that it could happen is actually we we call them the three Ds, death, debt, and divorce. But the big one is probably debt, okay? Because, and this this has happened to one of my clients, we've gone to the 42-day settlement, we've gone to settle, and his mortgagee, his bank, has said, we're not going to give you title. We've got a mortgage on this property, and there's not enough money coming in to pay out our mortgage, and we actually trump anyone else. So, so I'm really sorry, but even though you've entered into a contract for sale, we're not going to let the vendor sell it to you. Now, oh, in that particular case, we said, well, this is a stuff up. Can we get our money back, please, our deposit? Yeah. And he said, I'm really sorry. I took that money and I spent, in this case, he did actually buy another property with it. He bought it down south in Cronulla. But guess what? He defaulted on that property. He's lost it. So that, oh, my goodness. That actually happened. It actually happened to a client of mine. 
looking back at it, it was really regrettable. We did advise our client not to do it. We, you know, in hindsight, we should have just been absolutely adamant that he can't do it, but he took his own advice yeah. on that one. A couple of things in hindsight that I look back on and think were big red flags that, that, that probably if I see them again, I'll never, ever, ever allow my client to agree to it. The first one is the financial distress of that vendor. It was obvious when you look at the title search, he didn't have one mortgage to CBA. He didn't have one mortgage to Westpac. He had a whole lot of mortgages to a whole lot of unknown financiers. So Mango Mortgages and Easy Finance Proprietary Limited. It was just the cast of thousands on the title search. So in other words, he's very highly indebted. So the probability of him not being able to give good title at, se- at settlement was actually quite high. The second thing, which made that risk really high on that one, is the long settlement date. So if you have a settlement date, which is the normal date of 42 days, there's only so much that can go wrong during that period, all right? It's a, it's a relatively short period of time. You're going to have to be a little bit unlucky for something to go wrong for, to the vendor. But in this case, it was a six-month settlement period. So, so generally, the longer that you give something to go wrong in property or in life, <laughs> The more likely it is to go wrong. Yeah, that's probability for you, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Okay, so would a lot of contracts have a release of deposit clause in there? Yeah, I'm seeing them now in at least 50% of times, okay. um, which is a little bit frustrating because they're not always needed. A lot of the time, and, and my firm's a little bit guilty of this as well when we're acting for vendors, we'll just put them in the contract in case they're needed mm. um, and they get negotiated mm. and, and, and it's a bit of a waste of everyone's time really if they're not needed. They're probably needed about or allegedly needed about 20% of the time. Right. You know, and, and look, we, we often do agree to them. We agree to those those clauses that are the clauses where you can only use it for another house purchase. And we only do it so long as it's a house house purchase in New South Wales. Yeah. As long as we can get a front page contract so we can know whose trust account it is. So long as we, there's nothing that gives us notice that the vendor is in particular financial distress. So as long as we can sort of see if there's one mortgage on title, you know, it's not. And the other thing that we'd we'd also just look at is whether the settlement date is unusually long. Yeah, right. Providing it ticks all those boxes. Then we may we may with the client's obviously authority we yeah. may agree to a release of deposit clause. Excellent. Well, that's obviously something we definitely need to look out for, and obviously question your conveyance of solicitor about this as well. If if you want to leave it in those things you mentioned, Jared, them they make absolute sense. I never even thought to think about you know searching how many mortgages this this vendor may well have. Excellent. That's an excellent point. <laughs> Number two, what would be your number two thing to look for? The one that comes up a lot now, and it panics people a lot, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about it, is probably the land tax adjustment. Okay, yes. Yep. So that's actually not a special condition. It's actually a box that's ticked on the second or third page of the contract. It just says yeah. land tax adjustable, yes or no. Yeah. Creates a lot of confusion because most people don't pay land tax. Mums and dads who are buying their principal place of residence, they're not going to pay land tax on that property. There's an exemption. Yeah. So when their conveyancer or solicitor says to them, hey, the, the vendor wants you to pay their land tax, it be, it's, it's really offensive. It creates a lot of yes. – it becomes a, a really big issue. Like, what do you mean? I, I don't pay land tax. It's my principal place of residence. So what does it actually mean? Well, what it means is we're actually talking about the vendor, and the vendor almost certainly is an investor who is selling you a property for whom it's not his principal place of residence and he pays land tax for. He wants you to contribute to his yearly land tax bill not forever a day just for that just for that year so why would he want you to do that well you have to look at what land tax is land tax is a yearly fee or yearly charge that is charged 
by the Office of State Revenue in New South Wales on the 1st of January every year. They will look at your land holding and they say, you owe us $20,000. Now, they charge you on the 1st of January. They collect payment around March. And if you sell your property midway through the year, you do not get a refund. Okay, the, the, the Office of State Revenue are nasty like that. You do not get a refund. What they say to the investor is, well, good luck that you've sold your property. Mm. The land tax is charged on the 1st of January. It's for the whole year. You don't get any refund. So if you want to have a refund, if you want to have an adjustment, speak to your buyer. And that is what a land tax adjustment is. It's, right. it's hey, I've paid $20,000 worth of land tax in January. Yeah. I've sold the property on, let's say, the 30th of June. Ipso facto, I want you to give me a further $10,000 on top of the purchase price. Yeah. So that's where they're coming from. It's sort of to make it fair mm. um, because, you know, when you sort of say, well, that's your problem, not mine. Mm. Just to interject, the, the land tax that that vendor has paid and the land tax adjustment that, that is mentioned in the contract, could he ask you to, to do that over all of his holdings or just one particular property? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. He can only ever make you do it for that particular property. Okay. But it's an interesting question. He, he can sometimes make it so that you don't get the benefit of any land tax threshold. So what I mean by that is land tax, you actually, even if you are an investor and you do own multiple properties, you won't pay any land tax on the first, say, a million, it's around about a million dollars mm-hmm. worth of property. Right. So if you own one investment property worth a million dollars, you will not pay any land tax. Now, if you own two investment properties worth a million dollars each, you're going to be above the threshold by a million dollars, so you will pay land tax. Now, what they'll sometimes say in the contract, not only do you pay my land tax, but you pay it as if I don't have the use of a threshold. Does that make sense? Hmm. I'm not yeah, sure so I like that. Yeah. No, that's, that's sort of doubly nasty as well. And that, yeah. and that can happen. In the, sometimes you can sort of look at a, someone's, you know, someone's selling you a, um, you know, a $750,000 apartment in, in Sydney mm. and there's a land tax adjustment in there. You mm. might look and say, well, guess what? There's no land tax on that property because it's $750,000. Well, no, because some vendor solicitors will put a clause in there that says, no, you don't get the benefit of any threshold because we don't get the benefit of any threshold. That, that makes sense? So, Yes. Well, my socialist heart says, you know, you're lucky enough to be an investor and own multiple properties. You pay what the government asks you to pay. But, hey, that's yeah. just my thinking. Yeah. But <laughs> well, that's, that's how most solicitors acting for buyers would put it. Yeah, know? yeah. I guess it's slightly different if you are an investor. Mm. If, if you're an investor yourself, yeah. you might think, and, and that's why they'll oft, it'll often come down to that when in negotiation yeah. point. The vendor, if ever you're an investor, the, 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 the vendor might say, well, you're an investor. You've got your head around land tax. You've got to pay land tax. It's a tax deduction, so you should adjust. But most of the time, you know, it's just really a nasty try on mm. that, that, that these big investor sort of <laughs> investor vendors will, will try and pass on, and it should almost always be negotiated. Well, that's it. that's a really interesting clause, actually, because yeah, it is in every contract, and I always see the box, and uh, sometimes it's ticked, sometimes it's not. So it's really good to have a, a firm understanding about what that actually means. On that point, Michelle, mm. um, here's a little note for you. I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll be aware of this, but not everyone is. If you see a box like that that's not ticked, mm. so it's not ticked in either adjusted or not adjusted, yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean the solicitor's stuffed up and hasn't made an election. No. The rule is that whichever box pertains to the capitalised terms, that one will prevail. So that's a little tip. If ever you're looking yeah. through, hang on, they haven't ticked a box. 
Thankfully, in the New South Wales contract for sale, the not adjusted is in capital terms. So, that, in yeah. other words, the default, if nothing's ticked, the default is it's not adjusted. Yeah, yeah, I was aware of that. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because you have to always explain it to clients that just to make sure they're okay, it's all good. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Yes, but, panic. <laughs> absolutely. But I think it's, it, I, again, I think this is really important why you should always work with a really experienced solicitor who's just willing to take the time to explain these things to you. Because it's a massive commitment all around the country, but particularly here in Sydney where, you know, property prices are crazy. So if you don't actually know what you're signing, you know, you might want to reconsider and think about <laughs> think about what you're doing before you sign your life away. But uh, yeah. yeah, thank you for that, number two. And then we've got number three. What would you put on number three for people to really get their head around? Well, it's a really simple one to digest, but it, it just comes up time and time again. And, it, and it, it's the late fees. Yeah. Okay. So it's almost always negotiated, late fees. So if you are late to settle as a buyer, mm-hmm. the vendor almost certainly will charge you late fees yeah. on that. And I guess the reason is, well, there's many reasons. I guess it's just basically to compel you to not take forever and a day to settle. It's to pass on some of the mortgage costs that the vendor may or may not have. Yeah, it's a little bit of a penalty, basically. That, that, that's sort of essentially what it is for being late. So trying to encourage you to be on time. Mm. Um, now, the question is, what's the appropriate rate to pay, to, to charge? Yeah. Well, most vendors at the moment will start with 10%. So 10% per annum per day. So on a million-dollar property, I think that works out to be around about $300 a day. I'm, I'm not sure how good my maths is, but but it's going to be around that. So it's, it, it's not it's not a... You know, it's not, it's not something that's going to let you necessarily bankrupt you if you're a couple of days late, but it's going to be very, very annoying. And obviously, if it's a massive purchase price, if we're looking at three or four million dollars, then um, you know, ten percent becomes a very significant amount. And if it's a ten or fourteen day delay, then it, yeah, it becomes a very significant thing. And this is so, even if it's not your fault, even if it's your bank just messing stuff up. It's it's not it's completely out of control. You're just late, yeah. and it is what it is. You, oh, it's almost yeah. always the bank's fault. It's yeah. almost always the bank's fault. Yeah, you know, purchases <laughs> are normally pretty good. Yeah. It's, it's normally yeah. their banks. And, uh, yeah. And, and and before you even ask the question, Michelle, chances of trying to get your late fees back from your bank. Slim to none. Every every now and then you might get they might throw you a couple of hundred bucks, but it's it's trying to get blood from a stone. Those guys. So it is important that you negotiate it. Uh, and uh, but your solicitor is not going to get taken out of the contract. The best he can do is probably or she can do is is, is maybe bring it down to about six percent, five percent, percent would be a great result. The reality is most of the time it finishes somewhere in between around about eight percent. What about if the vendor's late? Do they actually get any kind of, is there any course that recourse for the buyers? Because obviously, A, they want to get in, um, they're ready to yep. go, uh, they've made this commitment, they probably have the, you know, the moving van already at the end of the street, cleaners, yep. what have you. What happens? Great question. It uh, sounds like you already know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm just putting it out there for those who yeah, don't I, know. <laughs> absolutely nothing. It, it is so unfair. It is so one-sided. There are, you know, the yeah. sort of Damocles comes down on a purchase if he's late. Mm. If the vendor is late, nothing. Mm. And you might say, well, why isn't my solicitor negotiating that? Mm. Sometimes you don't even bother because it, it just never gets agreed. It's, yeah. it's just basically a rule since the beginning of time. The vendor's contract, if you want to buy the property, buy it. Yeah. Otherwise, don't. Yeah. That's sort of the attitude you get. Is that the same then if the vendor pulls out of the contract completely? No, that's different. Okay. That's different. So we're talking about late fees here. Yeah. You've still entered into a contract for sale yeah, at right. the end of the day. Yeah. So there, there are- It's going to happen, just not on yeah. that particular day. Essentially, it's 14 days, isn't it? Yeah. So they, they, so what 
you only have one thing you can do as a buyer if the vendor is late, and that is issue what's called a notice to complete. Mm-hmm. And that notice to complete basically says you are hereby on notice that you must complete the transaction. You must convey the property to me yeah. within 14 days. If you do not, then we are entitled to terminate and we can then take whatever action a termination allows us to do. And, and there's mm. a few things you can do then if you yeah. terminate or, or, or if you're in a position to terminate. You can sue for specific performance. So you can go to the Supreme Court and say, I've had a contract here. They have to transfer title to a name. They haven't done it. And the court will actually say, well, there it is. It's done. That's one. But but if you just fall out of love with the property, if you're sick of this, this, this kerfuffle, then the other thing you could do is sue for damages. And you'd have yeah. to work out, well, what have I actually lost here? Have I lost accommodation? Have I lost you know, the, the yeah. opportunity to be in the market? It's a bit messy. Yeah. Um, not many people would go on that route. Most people would either sue for for specific performance or they mm. do nothing. They just put their deposit back and go. Gosh, that sounds really, really stressful. Not salty. Yeah. <laughs> I wish upon anybody. Now, we all, so these are the top three, but obviously yeah. there's so much more to the contract. And you touched upon, uh, with the release of deposit, you touched upon sort of the the option of 5 to 10% deposit. Mm. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, with house prices being the way they are, it's from my end, I'm seeing more and more people asking for a 5% deposit. I'm possibly even and sometimes a deposit bond. Can you run us through what actually yeah. that all means? Look, I'd encourage buyers, buyers agents and solicitors out there to always try and go for a 5% deposit. I guess on the on the assumption or on the principle, the money's always better in your hands than anyone else's. Um, you know, interest rates are starting to mean things again. So you, you can have it in your bank account. And it's, it's just a lot of money to come up with. So 5% is a new 10% as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> we probably see it negotiated in more than 50% of the time. Okay. Now, one of the reasons why vendor solicitors often agree to it is they'll often put a clause in there that says, yeah, we'll let you put 5% down on exchange, but we really want a 10% deposit. So you can pay the other 5% at settlement. And it doesn't make much sense to much people. Well, why would I pay you the other 5% of settlement? Because I've got to pay you the remainder of the purchase price anyway. The reason why the solicitors do that and they put this clause in there, it matters when there's a default. If the buyer defaults, then automatically the vendor will take the 5% in the trust account and they'll automatically get a very simple claim for the other 5%. It's a very simple, almost one-page document they put in the Supreme Court. If they don't characterize that a payment as a 5% deposit, then they're left to sue the buyer for damages. It's a far more complicated, uh, involved and intensive from a documentary perspective claim in the Supreme Court. So that's why they do it. I, I don't get too hung up about it because I always think, you know, if the money's not there, it's not there. If the buyer can't complete, then it's really just the 5% they're going to get. But that's what vendors do. Now, the reason why I went into that detail is a lot of clients will negotiate a 5% deposit and they'll, they'll act, operate on that assumption. They'll put the 5% deposit down and they'll get the contract in front of them and it will say 10% on the front page. Yes. And they'll go into a panic. Yeah. What do you mean? My solicitor negotiated five. You said five. We all said five. Now, relax. <laughs> it, it, 5% is agreed, but it's all part of the, the window dressing that vendor solicitors try and put in place in case you default. They say, well, actually, you never owed, you, it wasn't just a 5% deposit, it was a 10% deposit. You said it simplifies their claim. So don't don't stress out about it. That's just the way they do yeah. it. Yeah. I, I come across this a lot uh, where we go, oh, we're filling out the front page of the contract and, and the, the bar does exactly that. They go, oh, well, hang on a minute. It's like, no, it's all okay. It's, we all renegotiated. But um, very good points you make there. 
What about deposit bonds? I mean, they're a lot rarer, I would say, nowadays, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're not they're not commonly used still. A deposit bond is basically for someone who just simply doesn't have any cash uh, to buy the property. It's all tied up in a fixed deposit or in another property that they're selling where they haven't managed to get a release of deposit. But they've got a, a very highly rated financial institution to say, here is a piece of paper that says, if Joe Bloggs defaults at settlement, I, as QBE or whoever it is, the underwriter, will pay the vendor 10%. Now, vendors used to really, really hate those back in the day. They just were very traditional and vendor solicitors, that is, and they prefer the cash. It's actually not a, it's not a, it's not a bad alternative for both buyers and vendors. And I'll tell you why I think it is. Firstly, it, it, it's fine. It's all legit. It works. We've seen uh, vendors claim on them and we've seen a lot of buyers use them. But the biggest risk this day, these days in conveyancing, the biggest risk I see right now has nothing to do with the market and the causes we're going through. It's to do with cyber fraud, okay? It's to do with scammers impersonating solicitors, impersonating agents on email and saying, hey, you've got your deposit due tomorrow. Transfer me this sum to this account. And they are so good. They, are, they, they, they copy the email signature. They almost get the emails exactly the same. And we have had, had so many clients almost make this mistake. And I know of a lot of people for whom they have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's because in property transactions, we're fleeing cash around. We're transferring cash. Okay. So the good thing about the deposit bond, it's just one less massive transaction that you have to make. And that's why I like them a lot. That's a really interesting point because there's lots of solicitors who straight off go, nah, we're not accepting that at all. Whereas now it's actually making a case to actually, "Mm, you should consider it Um, because cyber fraud is on the up and up. I mean, I don't know how many emails I've had in the last couple of months saying, oh, we're so sorry, but we've, you know, accidentally released all your private details to all these, you know, different entities. Like, honestly, I'm changing my passwords every other day, which is, is very scary. And I know I'm not the only one, you know, it's happening to everybody out there. So you make a good point. they, They attack people in the problem property industry because they know that is a market where large sums of money are guaranteed to be changing hands. Yeah. Um, well, this is why I don't have a trust account, you see, because I, yeah. I, I, I let that. I let the real estate agents deal with that and the solicitors. It's massive risk involved, uh, obviously, with the, the amounts of money that are that are changing hands, like you said. Well, thank you so much, Jared. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to sit down with me and run our listeners through, you know, the most contentious, I suppose, um, uh, risky causes and special conditions in a contract that we haven't just covered um, that just popped in your head? Or how do people get in touch with you if they are in need for a good property solicitor? Oh, no, thanks. No, I think we covered everything. Mm. Um, There's a lot of other technical changes, but they're the big four. They're certainly the big four that I always think it's important for customers to sort of own their transaction a bit, to not be passengers and to understand some of these risks. Not every single amendment or clause in in the contract is capable of being understood in the short period of time that transactions happen. But those four, I think, are. But, you know, it's still obviously very important to have your contract reviewed by a competent conveyancer or solicitor. They're equally competent, either of them. I've had some very good solicitors, some very bad solicitors, some very good conveyancers, some very bad conveyancers. My own firm, you know, we'd love to be able to assist any of your listeners there today. We are, uh, I think, New South Wales' largest conveyancing company by volume. we found last year. So we've got a lot of very competent staff, we've got 10 licensed conveyances and six offices throughout the state, including Queensland. Um, if you just wanted to 
go to our website. There's a there's a um, get a quote button. Uh, I think on the front page. So it's www.dotandcrossit.com.au. And you have to be liberal with the T's and the S's when you put in that that website address because it's a D O double T and A N D cross double S I T T dot com dot au. Yeah, it's not dot and crossfit, which we sometimes get. It's dot and That's a different exercise altogether. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jared. I loved having you on. I hope you come back again very soon to explain us more about what happens in the real estate world uh, and how you really should be looking at your contracts very carefully. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much and talk to you soon. No worries. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Now, for those of you who've been listening, I hope that's enlightened you a lot uh, because I found it very interesting indeed to learn more about what is actually in a contract of sale. And particularly for you as a buyer, you start off as a, at a disadvantage. So you need to make sure that your conveyance or solicitor works very hard to equalize the balance of power so much as much as possible. Thank you for listening and until next time. 